for the week of April 14th, 2016. This is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. In this edition, what can the energy sector learn from Bitcoin? We'll talk with a tech expert about how to apply blockchain to transactions between devices and the grid. Then, so much to say about California. An overloaded grid, threats of a blackout, and a new proposal to shake up utility regulation. Finally, we'll talk about a controversial solar giveaway proposed for Kenya that has a lot of entrepreneurs worried. My esteemed co-hosts are here with me, as always. Catherine Hamilton comes to us from Washington, D.C. Hey, Catherine. Hi. How are you? I'm doing great. I had the best trip this week to Chicago to the Clean Energy Trust Challenge. It was just amazing the kinds of companies that they're funding and uh, it was one of the most fun trips I've had. What was unique about it? What's so amazing about the company? They're just the imaginations that they have and the technologies that are ready to deploy like um, different microgrids, EV technologies, food freshness technologies. It's just pretty incredible. Uh, it sort of puts it, it puts me to shame and yet also gives me a lot of hope. <laughs> Jigger Shaw comes to us from New York City. Hey, Jigger, how are you? Hey, how's it going? So I'm looking forward to seeing you in New York City coming up here in the beginning of May. And that brings me to a couple reminders. We, we have that live show on May 4th in New York City. It's going to be a really lively one. The three of us are going to be joined by Two extraordinary journalists from the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg. It's at the WNYC Green Space, which is, it's got phenomenal audio quality, a great atmosphere. So come say hello to us, listen live, have a cocktail with us, and uh, get our take on the latest industry trends. We've had some folks take advantage of our 15% discount to our upcoming solar summit in Arizona as well. That conference covers global solar trends. It's always really informative. A lot of data from our analysts, great conversations with executives. It's going to be on May 11th and 12th this year in Scottsdale, Arizona. And we've got a solar pre-conference as well. It's going to be focused all on software. You can use the promo code ENERGYGANG, all one word, during checkout for a 15% discount. So uh, let's turn to our guest now. We are going to talk about blockchain, the foundation of the cryptocurrency Bitcoin. If we imagine a world where we have billions and billions of devices talking to one another in real time and adjusting their behavior to, uh, let's say, you know, respond to economic signals from the electric grid, then we need a really secure and efficient way to track every one of those microtransactions. Many people believe that the blockchain is the answer. Here to help us understand what the blockchain is, is Paul Brody. Paul is the leader of Ernst & Young's Technology Sector Strategy Group. Before that, he was with IBM, where he was the VP of Mobile and the Internet of Things Unit, and he is with us from San Francisco. Hey, Paul, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. This should be a fun conversation. I first, I first came across your name when you presented uh, at MIT last month, and we're on a panel with our CEO, Scott Clavenna, to talk about how to apply blockchain to the Internet of Things and to the electric grid. So for those who've paid any attention to Bitcoin, they may have heard the term blockchain. It's, it's this database of every transaction made on the network, which helps it make it secure and transparent. So help us all get on the same page and understand how does a blockchain work and why is it unique? So uh, the easiest way to think about blockchains are uh, of uh, are thinking of them as 
a technology that does some pretty ordinary stuff in some very special ways. At the end of the day, the blockchain, the easiest way to think of a blockchain is it's a shared database that can be used to process transactions. What's really unique about the blockchain is a couple of things. First of all, it's distributed. So there's no central environment that is the source of all trust in the blockchain. Instead, all of the work and all of the records are distributed across all the participants. And this makes it incredibly secure. It's very, very hard to commit fraud with a blockchain technology because you don't just have to go in and edit one central database. You have to edit thousands or potentially millions. And that's just not really possible to do. The other great thing about blockchains are they're not just databases. They are mechanisms for executing uh, small bits of software. In Bitcoin world, they're called smart contracts, but really a smart contract is just another name for a really small program. And when I was at IBM and we were thinking about this question of how to manage large numbers of devices in a very efficient way, what we realized is these devices are getting really smart. And they have the ability to manage themselves if we find the right mechanism to do so. And in this core technology of, of Bitcoin, uh, we sort of took the core of Bitcoin, got rid of the financial component and said, hey, we have a mechanism for managing a large number of devices that need to interact with each other, that need to exchange value or activity and do so in a way that's very efficient and very secure. Okay, so... Do we have anything like it? So it sounds like a very ordinary thing, something that's very common sense. When big ideas like this are presented, very often they are just so simple. And I guess what I'm trying to figure out is, is there anything like it? I mean, there are systems out there to track transactions and to you know provide data on, on every single transaction. We, you know, we wouldn't be able to run financial markets or banking systems without it. So why is the blockchain materially different from what we have in place today. Yeah, so you know, you're exactly right. In fact, uh, I always love when I talk about this to tell people that the very first transaction processing system was actually made by IBM. It was called CICS and it was back in the 1960s and it was for keeping track of electricity meters. And so th that's the, the heritage of this technology in transaction processing. But the blockchain really is a technological and mathematical breakthrough because it's the first time we've ever been able to figure out how to reliably coordinate action amongst many parties without having any central authority. And it, it's a bit of a, a security breakthrough because uh, one of the amazing things about blockchains is you can trust the result that the network provides, even if some of the bad, some of the participants in the network might be bad guys. And this is, if you think about the world we're headed towards, uh, full of uh, cyber crime and security risk, this idea that you can have a network infrastructure that is reliable and resilient, even if some of the players are bad guys, is a real revolution. And it all comes down to some some breakthrough pr uh, thinking in the core of Bitcoin about how to create a truly decentralized bank that has no central banker and no primary kind of uh, holding company. So, Paul, what does this mean for, I know you're talking about security. One of the things that we thought about a lot when I, when I was at Gridwise Alliance was data privacy. So if everything's open is, consumer privacy still upheld? Well, maybe and maybe not. It all has to do with how you design activity. Uh, so blockchains, the way that they work is they share transaction data across all the participants. So 
on the one hand, you can see every transaction that's occurring. On the other hand, you can choose to encrypt all the data. However, a little bit like sending an encrypted email, you can encrypt the text, the, the body of the email, and so people can't read the content. But in order for that email to be a, delivered correctly, the header, right, the from and the to, has to be correct. And even the header, you can deduce some things simply by analyzing the headers alone. And so uh, the security that comes with blockchains may be offset at least to some degree by a reduced level of uh, secrecy. So let's make this real for people. How would we apply this to the energy sector? You've actually worked on a project creating a blockchain platform or a platform based on the blockchain at IBM called Adept. And uh, this was in partnership with Samsung. It was using the the blockchain application from the provider Ethereum. What is Adept designed to do to allow devices to communicate and for us to better track those communications? So what we wanted to do uh, in the project to, to create Adept was to create an environment where devices could operate just like they would if there was a big centralized infrastructure, but they would do so in an entirely decentralized way, and they would solve, uh, they would act on and solve some of the very real problems that we expect to encounter in our smart connected future. One of the scenarios that we worked through, for example, was this question of how will you manage electricity in a home or an industrial facility if you have a, a set of solar panels on the roof, you have devices that consume varying amounts of power. How will all the devices and the systems in your home or office or factory respond to changing availability of power, as an example? So where are we at here? I mean, this seems like such a simple concept, but it's going to take a while to integrate. We've seen some experimentation. I know that um, LO3 Energy has developed a microgrid in Brooklyn, and this week, we saw the first peer-to-peer -peer solar sales along that microgrid using a blockchain with payments through PayPal. We have uh, Grid Singularity, this company based in Vienna, I think, working on uh, pay-as-you-go payment systems based on the blockchain for off-grid solar sales in developing countries. People are experimenting with it, but it's still so still so early, and these are you know singular transactions. Um, where do we start with this? Are, are these promising developments? These are amazing developments, and we are in an incredible time. Uh, these developments, they really highlight why blockchains are so great for energy. Most systems, most internet systems, and most centralized systems don't think about where users are and how localized things are. But the grid is really important. One of the foundations of blockchain technology is that it's distributed and autonomous. And if we think about grids, energy consumption in the grid really is distributed. Production and consumption are going to be distributed. And there's a really big penalty that we'll pay for unnecessary you know, transmission and unnecessary storage. So getting devices to interact with each other locally, to getting the ability to use your neighbor's solar panels when they're not home is vastly more efficient in the long run than piping in uh, electricity from a grid storage environment somewhere or a utility scale grid that's that's 100 or 200 miles away. So uh, these proof of concepts, these early developments are the foundation for a very rapid transformation. Uh, yesterday, I spent the day with the chief technology officer of one of the world's largest 
electricity equipment and power distribution companies. And we had a we sat up on the whiteboard and we marked out how blockchains will work alongside existing technology and cloud-based analytics to help companies really uh, optimize the production and consumption of electricity. So today's prototypes and proof of concepts are going into massive scaled up industrial environments. I would say say we'd expect to see those things in starting in 18 to 36 months from now. So Paul, uh, you know, I guess there's two separate pieces here. I think one is the technology itself and figuring out who's doing what. And then the other part of it is um, the money and figuring out who is responsible for paying for what, right? And so it seems like blockchain helps to to solve that latter piece by, you know, getting involved in the former so that so that like, you know, for instance, if Solar City is doing a securitization of their residential um, solar projects and, you know, a bank wants to buy their bonds and they say, well, did you follow all of these guidelines and did you actually, you know, meet these standardization and securitization requirements, the blockchain can very easily say yes to that answer. Whereas right now they're actually paying some law firm, you know, millions of dollars to actually double check. That's right. Uh, what we're going to see a lot of with the blockchain and the Internet of Things, smart devices coming together, is this, for the first time ever, the real integration of uh, the financial transaction with the operational execution. You will consume electricity or you will produce electricity and the recording and ownership and transmission will be recorded right there in the blockchain in a way that's uh, extremely granular and impossible to fake. Could this potentially destroy the utility business model, this democratization of all these energy solutions? Oh, I don't think so. On the contrary, uh, one of the things that I think is coming very soon is the end of things like net metering, uh, which has been really tough on the grid companies because you basically produce solar when nobody needs electricity and then you consume from the grid when it's expensive. Uh, blockchains and distributed systems make it possible for us to keep much better track of who, who's producing what and what's valuable. And really smart devices will get people to start treating electricity as not the same price all day long and to start responding not just to time of day signals, but to very granular information about the ups and downs of uh, power availability during the day. So, uh, for example, the prototype that we built with Samsung, one of the ideas we were trying to simulate was the idea that in a home, we would manage electricity consumption so that we only ever used what the solar panels were outputting. And if the solar panels, if clouds went over them, for example, in the middle of the day, we would find a way to prioritize electricity consumption to avoid having to draw from the grid. So I think these technologies could actually be very, very helpful to grid operators. How big can this get? So you imagine what's happening in New York. They want to create this distributed grid platform that allows everything from efficiency and demand response to solar to bid into the market equally. Could the New York Public Utilities Commission or whoever is managing the distribution grid integrate the blockchain to create the foundation for that market? And then could you go up all the way to regional grid operators and say like, okay, you're, you're going to run your system off of the blockchain. Can this work its way through an entire industry? I think it can, and I, I think it will. It's not necessary that we will use every 
single device and every ant transaction on the same blockchain. Uh, it's in all probability will have many different blockchains uh, working together uh, for reasons of efficiency. And there's still some work to be done on how blockchains scale up. People who follow Bitcoin know that there's some challenges in how that works. But I'm pretty confident based on what I've seen that over the next couple of years, we'll see some really great ways to address that and make sure that the technology continues to scale up. Yeah, so Stephen brought something to mind for me because I'm the policy wonk in the group, which is, you know, supposing New York decides to do this, this means that there's some regulatory thing that has to happen. So what are there regulatory barriers or other barriers to policy barriers to getting this done? Definitely. And I'm not as expert on what the regulatory barriers might look like. Uh, my husband actually uh, sits on the board of one of the community choice organizations in California that is trying to enable uh, local communities to opt out of the core infrastructure and buy, for example, more renewable power. They're very interested in blockchain technology, and they're actually trying to explore what the implications would be in terms of the kinds of agreements that you could make and how that affects your ability to not just purchase renewable electricity, but to incentivize the, the localization, what I like to jokingly refer to as artisanal, humanely raised local electrons. So, Paul, I think that, you know, one of the challenges with these types of conversations is that operationalizing them gets difficult unless you're, you know, sort of a large company like Samsung. I mean, you know, what company or, you know, how does someone get in on this? Like, so let's say someone decided, and this is, you know, a real life example that I hear all the time. Someone says, I just raised $500 million from, you know, BlackRock, and I decided that I'm going to, you know, decide to invest in solar residential loans or solar commercial loans or whatever it is. And, and, you know, now I need to set up my back office. Like, who do they hire if they're like, I'm sold, I want to do blockchain? Like, how do they, how do they go all in on this? And who do they pay to, to be a service provider for them on it? So I think uh, two sources here, we're going to see more of these great startups like LO3 becoming uh, not just uh proof of concept organizations, but they're going to start selling turnkey software packages and solutions to grid operators and equipment providers. And of course, you know, in my role at, at places like Ernst & Young, we love helping companies, everything from startup in incubation that we do to helping very large enterprises enter new spaces uh, and do strategy assessments. So we'll, uh, we'll see a whole ecosystem of providers, I think, emerge around these technologies. Right. But how do I hire one of those people? Like, I mean, the, the problem is, like, let's say they're competent, right, which happens all the time. We have that in grid edge. We have that in metering. We have that in lots of things. But in, unless it's being sold by GE or it's being sold by Schneider Electric or it's being sold by IBM or, you know, someone else or Visa or MasterCard, you know, how do I sort of say I'm going to work with this startup company and go to Deutsche Bank and force them to use the blockchain with this startup company to pay me? So I, I don't think you can force large enterprise players to do something like that. What I see, the model that really works in Silicon Valley is creating a turnkey solution and proving it in a small-scale environment. So if you can make a small manufacturing microgrid or small residential microgrid work, that's terrific. If you can convince a residential builder that a microgrid 
based on the blockchain with solar panel on every roof's home is cheaper in the long run for residents and adds to their property value, you can do that. So it's the same challenge, I think, that startups face the world over, which is you've got to get some proof points. And once you have some proof points, even if they're not enormous, momentum tends to, to build. Uh, but you have to find the, the smart, uh, forward-looking recipients, and you've got to find a way. I, I love what Peter Thiel says uh, about, he, he talks about creating small monopolies, right? Solve someone's small but very urgent problem before you solve world hunger. And so uh, sometimes that means being less ambitious before you become more ambitious. So why would a company like IBM or Samsung or any of the other large industrial or tech companies get into blockchain? Why wouldn't they just want to develop their own uh, database and verification system on their own that's proprietary and they can sell to customers? Well, you just answered the question in some respects. I'll tell you what originally got me interested in blockchain. I had a bunch of clients come to me and they said, you know, we're having this problem. We started selling these uh, connected online devices. And what we found was that it was costing us more money to operate than we anticipated. And we were earning less revenue. And we've got to find a way you know, and oh, and by the way, we were, were just getting sort of killed on cybersecurity and, and hacking and so on. And they said, we got to find a way that's very inexpensive and very secure in order to, to start moving not thousands of devices, but millions or potentially billions of them. And so, sure, you can make more money selling a proprietary database or a big centralized server farm. Uh, in the short run. However, if we wanted the market to grow from a few thousand units at a company to millions or billions of devices, we had to find something. Our goal, and I think we got to it, was a technology that would enable you to build and manage large-scale IoT networks for 99% less cost. And that's literally what's possible using the blockchain technology. And what we've seen over and over again in the history of technology, and this is why it's always instructive, to look at these historical examples is every time you drive costs down by one order of magnitude, demand goes up by substantially more than that. So in, it's absolutely in everyone's long-term interest to find vastly more scalable ways to do stuff. So, Paul, I'm thinking about the consumer here and how a lot of devices are out there. Consumers don't seem to be really super interested in engaging on energy. They'll engage in lifestyle more than electrons. And so is this really going to be device to device or are somehow consumers going to be much more engaged with a system like this? They're not going to be engaged with a system like this. And we don't want them to. I think this idea that I'm going to care about saving a quarter of a cent by moving my washing machine load time back two hours is ridiculous. Uh, no one's going to do it. What I think people will accept is smart devices that make intelligent, autonomous decisions. And if you want to, if you need to, you can override that decision. You say, no, I really need the laundry started now. But one of the things I really loved about uh, blockchains is this ability to write logic and run it in a distributed way and have stuff happen automatically and just let it go. And if somebody wants to override it, because they, they don't like the sound of the washing machine late at night or they really need that, you know, that the dish is cleaned right away, they can do that. But otherwise, 
let the system automatically make smart decisions. Otherwise, we're just taxing people with too many day-to-day -day decisions and a lot of this stuff. And we want to let them just enjoy the product and have it just work. So, but if that's the case, then why wouldn't the first application that we hear about be, you know, Apple's iTunes or Apple's App Store, right? Where, you know, a quarter of a cent really does matter. Well, we will see. Uh, blockchains are great for... Um, Blockchains are great for microtransactions and for doing them very efficiently. But we just have to, and and so we will see uh, applications for blockchains in these environments. But I think uh, uh, we we should not for, for forget that um, if we want people to engage in purchases and sales that are worth a quarter of a cent or five cents or ten cents, we have to make it so easy that you pay no attention to it. Because if you have to pay attention to a decision about five cents you've already spent far too much mental energy on that question. So automation and intelligence have to underpin all of those decisions. Hey, I'm the kind of guy who will bend over and pick up a penny, so I care about those five cents. No, I, I think that that's an important distinction here. To This is not something that consumers will engage with. We're talking about something that's running a system behind the scenes. Exactly. I, no one knows whether the database that powers their uh, you know, car mileage calculator is Oracle or SAP or uh, OpenSQL, and no one should have to care. And it should be the same for blockchain. It stuff should just work when it gets to the consumer. Right, but the reason people are going to care is just using Apple's iTunes, again, as an example, is that if the transaction costs are higher than expected, then the artists get less money, right? Or Apple gets less money, right? So you know, the people, reason people are going to care is because blockchain is going to allow Apple to make a lot more money and artists a lot more money. Uh, see, and I, I would actually beg to differ there. I think the reason that iTunes is wildly successful is that uh, why they were wildly successful originally was not about margin and it wasn't about overhead. It was about simplicity, right? You like a song, it's 99 cents. You click once, you get it. It shows up on your iPhone, on your Mac, on your PC, wherever you are, and it just works. And it was that incredible stunning simplification that Apple achieved. And uh, so at the end of the day, I think really successful technologies, they, do re they make really, really hard stuff incredibly simple. And that, more than anything else, I think drives this transformational adoption. And that's what I hope we'll get to with blockchains and energy. Yeah, I'm not disagreeing with you on that, Paul. I mean, my, my point is simply that there are that these microtransactions do cost real money, right? That's why Samsung and others have hired you to help them with trying to figure out how to reduce the cost of these things. I mean, and my point is, is that when you reduce the cost of that, sometimes it gets passed on to the consumer, but other times it actually helps to fund the deployment of these technologies. So, you know, uh, one of the things that's holding back, you know, everyone giving a poor person a free refrigerator and then using those refrigerators in demand response markets is, you know, the transaction cost, right? And, and, and you know, I'm not sure that that esoteric example is actually going to make the front page of the New York Times. But, you know, an artist um, who like, you know, Taylor Swift, who currently doesn't want to be on Spotify because Spotify can't figure out how to pay her well because they don't they have a lot of transaction costs, um, you know, might, you know, get covered in the New York Times because blockchain helped reduce the cost of the the transactions. And there are actually a couple of artists and I'm forgetting the name of the one of the first ones who, who just decided to put her music on the blockchain uh, so that she could simplify that process. So we could see things like that. I, I think um, it's too early to tell how the benefits of this technology will be distributed, but 
in the recent past, it feels like a lot of the improvements in the technology industry have ultimately gone to consumers rather than large enterprises. Our first Taylor Swift reference. All right, I love it. We can keep talking about music all day. So last question for you, Paul. When do we reach the point of no return for blockchain? Bitcoin proved that it works. IBM has proved on a small scale that this can work for Internet of Things. Companies like LO3 Energy are starting to experiment with microgrids and peer-to-peer solar transactions. At what point does adoption get to the level where we are past the point of no return on this? Because it's still so early, and I don't think we can say that this is inevitable. Or can we? Oh, I, th- I think we can, actually. I mean, one of the things about energy is it's a little bit behind some of the stuff that's going on in global finance. Uh, right now, there's not a major bank in the world that isn't in the process of deploying and adopting blockchain technology. And uh, given that finance and energy are so tightly bound together, I think we've already passed the point of no return. It's only a question of when, not if. Paul Brody is the leader of Ernst & Young's Technology Sector Strategy Group. He was also with IBM. Uh, thanks so much. This is such a compelling topic. Uh, it's, it's a little bit hard to understand, but you have described it very well. So thanks, Paul. Delighted to be on. Thanks for inviting me. All right, let's turn our attention to California right now. Lots happening in that state. We're going to discuss a few related stories. Firstly, California's grid operator said this month that it is starting to curtail more solar farms because of excess generation, and that's prompted calls for California to link up a grid run by Pacific Corp in order to better balance supply and demand, and that's kind of a controversial decision. Also, regulators are now warning about the possibility of blackouts this summer in California because of that major gas leak in the southern part of the state. Uh, They're now asking whether we should ramp up demand-side management programs to address that problem. And finally, California Commissioner Michael Florio proposed a new way to compensate utilities for their investments in distributed energy resource. And it sort of mirrors what we're talking about in New York. So we'll just quickly discuss that as well. First, to the excess generation problem, curtailment is becoming an issue in California now because the state has so much solar. Uh, It's generating in the middle of the day. Catherine, what are the state's options for balancing the grid, for either connecting grids or for helping balance the grid within the state? Sure. Just like HECO did when they tested uh, whether they could add more solar uh, rooftop and use and smart inverters yes were there and they could manage it so i think there are technologies that you can install pretty quickly to be able to manage it the other issue is that la coal the coal plant is going to shut down and when it does that'll open up lines to utah and arizona so that you'll be able to move things around a bit more and that should relieve pressure just because you'll have other lines that you can work with Right. Jigger, I want to ask you about linking those Western grids. But firstly, to the headline itself, a lot of people took this data, this uh, California ISO data, and said that California has way too much solar, way too much renewable energy, and the curtailment is so far pretty small. It will be a problem in the future, but the problem doesn't seem to match the headlines I've read. Do you agree with that? I do. But I think that the bigger the bigger challenge here is that We have been trying to force the electric utility company to actually pursue demand dexterity with the same vigor that it's that it has always pursued supply dexterity. And by connecting the Portland and, you know, the the Oregon grid to California, it basically lets the utilities off the hook. You know, I, I, you know, for me, the big challenge and, you know, I think that the 
Um, the conversation about the natural gas leak at Southern California Gas is the same thing, which is they're basically saying, we don't have enough gas, therefore we're going to have rolling blackouts, when they really could shift demand to be able to accommodate you know, solar, wind, as well as a lack of you know, natural gas storage. But instead, all we hear about is that uh, the crutch that we always depend on, which is supply dexterity, is being affected by all these external factors. I mean, don't we want to do both, though? And who I'm, cares no. if we let them off the hook, right? Like, if it solves no, the problem, No, I don't want to do matter? both. I don't want to do both. Because if we do both, then we have the same situation Germany's in, which Germany did not solve the problem of figuring out how to, um, you know, tackle demand dexterity internally because they just kept exporting all their excess solar and wind to other markets. And when you look at grids in Africa or grids in South America or grids in India, for that matter, they don't have the flexibility that the German grid has and the California grid has. And I think it's incumbent upon us if we really want to decarbonize um, around the world to figure out how to actually vary demand with the same level of vigor that we're varying supply. And I think there's there's an issue in that L.A. area with the Liso Canyon specifically. I talked to some folks out there who said, you know, they don't have enough resources for the summer potentially. There are 10 million people in L.A. County alone and 17 million in the, the broader, broader L.A. area. And there's just not a good read on what the gas infrastructure looks like out there so that they can even decide how to plan and how to deal with the potential risk of something like this happening. And what happens is in that area, when the utilities have the chance, they, you know, they buy more gas and they, but they, and yet they don't have the planning in place to figure out what is the infrastructure that we currently have so that we can adjust if we need to. Yeah, that brings me to the second story. So the California Energy Commission, the California Public Utilities Commission, the Independent System Operator, the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, they all came together and issued a report, a warning that said we could see two weeks worth of blackouts this summer in Southern California if we don't have enough gas. So there's 10 billion cubic feet of gas still left in Aliso Canyon, but that link created a major shortfall for SoCal gas. And and this warning is pretty dire. I mean, two weeks of, of blackouts, that's incredible to think about. Now, we did see advocates who, um, led by Bill Powers, this, this um, the, a guy who does a lot of modeling on localized energy. The organization he works for, Food and Water Watch, issued a report saying that this was um, fear-mongering, that we had the appropriate measures in place to deal with the, the gas shortage. What did you think, Jigger? Like, do you think that this warning about two weeks of potential blackouts is realistic? Yeah, no, it is fear mongering. I mean, you know, Bill Powers has been doing great quality work for a long time. And, and, and I think that when you think about like I was talking to Daryl Park, who is running for the LA County, you know, supervisors and um, is a former solar entrepreneur. Um, it's just shocking to me how much progress that we all perceive that we've made. And then when this kind of stuff happens, it's obvious that we haven't made any progress at all. You know, basically, these guys are saying that all of the technologies that we talk about, whether it's Nest thermostats or whether it's demand response and load control, of which they've just done an auction in the California ISO to test out whether whether folks can actually provide reliable demand response, all of that stuff is basically not worth relying on. That it's fine when it's a pilot program. It's fine when it's like, you know, um, on the side, but that that all of these programs that we've deliberately put in place since the 2001 California electricity crisis 
are not meant to be relied upon um, in a time of a crisis, that instead we need to rely back on, you know, blackouts and natural gas infrastructure, which is complete and utter BS. And I'm, I'm just like, I think that we all sort of like, like just are too timid to stand up to these guys because we're like, oh, maybe there's something we don't understand or maybe there's some truth to what they're saying. And there isn't. They're literally just lying. And we sort of just say, well, but we have to sort of like present a fair and balanced story. Yeah, but the um, staff of the California PUC, the Energy Commission, and CalISO, and LADWP, the um, utility in LA, came up with a plan that has sort of 18 mitigation measures. And, you know, some of those are targeting the natural gas itself, but a lot of others are, you know, expanding demand response programs, reprioritizing energy efficiency toward greatest impact solar thermal programs. So I think they are thinking about that, those as solutions to this issue. So why would they possibly then allow something to get published that said that we could have two weeks worth of blackouts when we can't? I mean, there's no there's there's no conceivable reason to have blackouts, except that these companies don't want to sign contracts with these providers of these other services quickly so that they can actually ramp up to meet the demand this summer. Well, there's also a CalISO requirement that 25% of the power has to come from fossil fuel at all times, which seems a little bit like an arbitrary number, but uh, that's uh, that's one of the requirements, and so kind of paradoxically in California. Right, all of which can be fixed. Well, a very serious test for California as we move into the late spring and early summer. One last question I have is on Commissioner Florio's proposal Basically, it was um, a proposal to compensate utilities and utility shareholders for investments in distributed energy resources in lieu of centralized infrastructure like power plants or substations or all the other stuff that is easy for utilities to rate base. Jigger, any comment on that proposal? It, It does look a little bit like what's being proposed in New York as part of the REV process. I'm actually kind of surprised that this wasn't proposed in California sooner, to be honest. Well, I mean, this is what I was saying to you guys before about, you know, PV and PV's legacy was basically trying to maintain this early, early stage innovation around battery storage and solar and other things, while at the same time allowing the utilities to, you know, build infrastructure without, um, you know, having any sort of uh, accommodation for the other resources that are going in. I think now that the other resources have become so large, particularly solar, but now increasingly battery storage and other technologies, um, you know, there is a conversation here about this. But I think the devil's going to be in the details, which is the key to Rev is that we actually have to slash and burn, you know, 50% of the utilities capex budget to be able to accommodate all the rest of these other technologies. This isn't a one-for-one trade, right? I mean, in the end, the reason why these technologies should be deployed at scale and they should be able to rate-base them um, is because they're so much cheaper than business as usual. And that causes an enormous amount of friction with the utilities, which I don't think Florio's proposal addresses. Yeah, I totally agree that this is about how it spins out. So, you know, how much deferral and displacement is going to balance the need to retain T&D infrastructure. So, you know, like I, I understand the thought about, like, let's give them some credit for doing that. At the same time, they're going to have to balance it pretty carefully and see how it all kind of happens. Our third story is on off-grid markets. 
I published a piece last week on a company called SkyPower, this developer that's proposed giving away 2 million free solar lighting and charging kits to hospitals and schools and individuals across Kenya. Now that sounds pretty good, right? A couple million solar homes for free? Well, it set off alarm bells in nearly every corner of the off-grid solar industry, including some of the biggest lenders in the space. Many argue that flooding the market with free solar will crush the burgeoning off-grid industry that is helping people build credit and build energy services over time. And it's also raised questions about what SkyPower's intentions really are. SkyPower is a Canadian company that bills itself as the world's biggest renewable energy developer, and it claims to have a pipeline of upwards of 25 gigawatts. In reality, it has seven projects operating in Ontario that it co-developed with other companies, including during the feed-in tariff bonanza with uh, SunEdison. And many people think this proposed giveaway is a stunt to secure contracts for large-scale projects from the Kenyan government. SkyPower CEO says those accusations are false and that this giveaway is part of his effort to bring solar to as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. I talked to him for this story and uh, talked to nine professionals in the industry who both spoke on the record and on background about their worries about this giveaway. Jigger, where do you come down on this? Are concerns about the giveaway valid? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I've known Kerry for a long time. I mean, I was CEO of Sun Edison when we did a deal with SkyPower. And, um, you know, I mean, Kerry's an interesting guy. And so basically, since the financial crisis, Kerry has been aggressively bidding on contracts around the world. Um, and, you know, at prices that nobody thinks can work. Um, and then to his credit, you know, sort of the solar and wind prices have come down so massively that a lot of those contracts actually had real value. Um, and then, you know, his goal was to try to sell those contracts to other partners because he has a hard time of raising project finance to actually build the projects himself. Um, but he can, you know, sell them to others. In this case, he, you know, when President Obama was in Kenya, tried to secure a very large contract in Kenya um, and promised uh, to give away 2 million systems in order to try to secure that contract. Um, it is going to destroy the local market, which is one of the reasons why India has had such hard times, because politicians are constantly giving away stuff in India, um, you know, right before an election, which destroys local markets as well. And um, and, and I, I don't think he's really thought this through. I think for him, it's, you know, really about, you know, this this massive contract that he's trying to secure in Kenya and not really about the, you know, the rest of the, the small a home system marketplace that he doesn't really participate in. Yeah, it was interesting. I was on a panel this week uh, in Chicago with Jim Rogers, CEO of Duke, former CEO of Duke, and he had the experience with his foundation, this global bright light foundation of handing out solar lanterns. And he said, it just doesn't work. He said, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not sustainable. People don't know what to do with them. Ownership is key. And talking to folks who are really on the ground delivering um, the services, not only is it important for us to have ownership of these folks in um, in developing countries to have ownership of solar power in their own homes, but also to move to more productive uses through small and medium enterprises to have to really create an, a whole ecosystem so that you're building businesses, you're building industry, you're building things on the ground that that are the ecosystem for renewables and and drive investment rather than just giving it out. That's the problem. Exactly. When you 
sign contracts, when you offer people a chance to build credit, um, they get access to the financial system where they didn't have it before. Uh, they have the ability to build credit. They have the ability to build energy services over time. They're ensured that they have a company there who's going to maintain the system if there are any problems. And when you give all those systems away, you lose that ecosystem as you described it, Catherine. And that's really what people are arguing here. I think for many people, when I've described this story who don't follow this space, they see these companies as defending their turf and see these com these off-grid companies who are criticizing the giveaway as very defensive. But when you really look at their arguments and look at what they've built over the last decade and a half, and you listen to some of the biggest financiers in this space who say, this is completely scaring away the money and the companies who want to get in who are not already in Kenya, it, it makes you think. So there's a real problem here, and giveaways are are dying. That's that's really what the industry is arguing. Giveaways are dying. They're important after a crisis, but they are not a way to build a real market and a real ecosystem. Yeah, and if you look at what the big funders are doing, like the World Bank is funding this Kenya Climate Innovation Center, and this is essentially an incubator to train business people. You use the workforce in the country who know the local market, who know the policies and politics, but may not have the business acumen or know the technology or be able to provide the services and train those folks, just like we do in incubators here, and then launch those as businesses. Well, and, you know, and, and we we had a lot of work that we did to get us here, right? I mean, the, the first sort of sky powers that we were trying to, um, you know, fight back were a lot of the impact investors who were destroying the market back in 2011, 2012. Um, we finally got them to understand why, you know, allowing a real capitalism to exist in these countries was a good thing. Um, and now you've got, you know, uh, sky power basically trying to, undo all that good progress. Um, you know, World Bank and others are all agreeing to play ball with what we suggested, as well as Arita and India and other places. And so it's it's a lot of work that they're trying to unravel. So, Jigger, what do you think about these reimbursable grant programs where where people are giving grants and yet they get reimbursed as long as the business thrives? Well, I mean, that's corporate uh, money, which I don't have a problem with providing some of this kind of stuff for corporate money. But what I have a problem with is is when you've got uh, debt, you know, that's being provided for project finance in some of these markets at three, four, five, six percent interest when, you know, the prevailing rates there locally are 18 percent. And they're 18 percent for a reason, because you're getting paid in local currency. And in many of these places, you have inflation rates that are 10 or 11 percent, right? And so, so on the project finance side, I think people have to really be able to stand up real businesses that deal with the inflation rates as they are in these countries. Um, on corporate finance, um, these re reimbursable grants, I think, works fine. The most alarming takeaway for me as I talked to professionals in this space was that people are already reacting to this announcement. Plan Canada is the nonprofit in uh, Canada that's working with Sky Power on, on this distribution plan. And it's unclear when they're going to roll this out, if they ever do. It seems like more of a PR stunt at this point. But companies are stopping their movement into Kenya be just because of the threat of this announcement. And when I talked to the International Finance Corporation, they said, absolutely, we're talking to lenders that are very nervous about this and that are freezing any new investments in Kenya because of it. So it's pretty alarming. 
that's uh, that's going to wrap up this segment. Let's finish the show. And Jigger, I'll give you the first word on your story. Tell us something we don't know. So Green Tech Media just came out with its Grid Edge, you know, 20, um, you know, top companies uh, building the 21st century energy system. And it gave a great shout out to the New York Power Authority and Taliesin Technologies. Um, New York Power Authority has put together the Energy Manager Program um, in response to Governor Cuomo's 20% by 2020 uh, energy reduction goals for the state buildings. Uh, the Power Authority has basically created its own continuous commissioning big data system with with uh, Taliesin and um, has already hooked up a thousand buildings, mostly on SUNY campuses, but also other buildings. They've got 4,000 or so buildings to go just for the state. Um, and then they've got all the rest of their customers that they're going to hook up, which is school districts, municipal buildings, uh, NYCHA, uh, public housing. Um, it's a huge undertaking. And, and I think it is going to finally prove the promise of uh, continuous commissioning and building automation. Catherine, enlighten us. Yeah. So first of all, I need to get a, give a hat tip to Evan Gillespie of the Sierra Club, who uh, sends me things all the time and is my go-to guy on most things California. But he pointed me to a story that came out yesterday that MidAmerican Energy said yesterday they are going to put $3.6 billion more into its largest wind energy project in Iowa. It now provides 85% of its total energy mix is from wind. I mean, it is phenomenal how much um, by 2020, the, the renewable uh, energy penetration that they're going to have. They've, and it, that's part of their total investment is now $10 billion, mid-American. My anecdote comes from Ben Palos. He's an energy expert who does uh, a lot of analysis, and he writes for GTM occasionally. He sent me this through a tweet yesterday. He flagged um, a new workshop uh, from the Federal Trade Commission about consumer protection. This is kind of an extension of our conversation last week about consumer protection. And according to the rough agenda that he sent out, they're going to talk about technological technological advancements in solar. They're going to talk about net metering and regulatory approaches to compensating solar customers. They're going to talk about the the, the competition among utilities and solar distributed generation firms and just the broad set of consumer protection issues within that sector. I'm sure there's probably a lot of people who want to check that out, people in the solar industry. It's on June 21st at the Constitution Auditorium in D.C. So search for that, or you can find it on our podcast page. That'll be it for the show. Back episodes and subscription options can be found at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. And of course, find us on the podcast app of your choice. A huge shout out to the folks who've rated and reviewed this podcast on iTunes. It's so important for helping us find new listeners and your reviews mean a lot to us. I've noticed that there are a lot of new ones on there. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You can connect with us in many ways. We're all on Twitter. So is the show. We're searchable. We also check email and like to hear from our listeners. You can shoot us a note at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Catherine, good conversation this week. Talk yeah. to you next week. Thanks. Have a great weekend. Jigger, you do the same. Thanks. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week. Mm-hmm.